I want to read this morning from Psalm 67, the whole psalm, a psalm of, uh, says, for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Silah. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness. And guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. We're going to be in Matthew 28 this morning. Matthew 28, uh, probably a well-known passage. Looking at the Great Commission uh, As we begin, I just want to start by saying thank you uh, to Grace Bible Church for the opportunity to come and open God's word and and even just talk about the ministry that we're longing to do in Papua New Guinea. Um, And uh, I just want to let you know it's it's not something we take lightly. Uh, Getting to come and open the word with you is no small task. And I'm hopeful that um, our time in in God's word this morning will encourage your hearts as we uh, seek to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. Uh, As we do so, as I said, we're going to be in Matthew 28, and I'm going to start by reading the passage. So Matthew 28, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 20. As you see, it's the the last section in the book of Matthew. Uh, So follow along as I read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Pray with me. Father, you are good, you do good, you are kind and merciful. You are enthroned in heaven, and you are worthy of praise. You are great. God, help us to, in this time, have hearts that are uh, laid open, that we are, we are humble, that we are longing to be changed by your word. Help us to uh, consider our lives in light of eternity. And I pray for this time that this time in your word would be fruitful, that it would be an encouragement, that it would bring uh, further godliness and maturity uh, in the lives of your saints. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have given it to us and communicated to us through it. God, help us to hold it up high uh, and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church? Is that something that we should know? Is that something we know? Where should one look to find the purpose of the church? These are questions that we ought to have answers for. 
Often people will speculate on these answers and add what they think the purpose of the church is. And here, Grace Bible has it stated on their website. We're so thankful for it. Uh, and in it, there are multiple places where these questions are being answered all over. And all of which are actually found in one book, the scripture, the Bible. Because the God who created the church, the God who created the world, the God who created us, who calls us out as its members from darkness into light, and who is the head of the church, is the one who gets to determine what the purpose of the church is. I want you to listen to Grace Bible Church's purpose of the church. We teach that the purpose of the church is to glorify God. Listen, Ephesians 3, 2, 1. By building itself up in the faith, Ephesians 4, 13 to 16. By instruction of the word, 2 Timothy 2, 2 and 2, 15 and 3, 16 through 17. By fellowship, Acts 2, 47, 1 John 1, 3. By keeping the ordinances, Luke twenty two nineteen, Acts two thirty eight through forty two, and by advancing and communicating the gospel to the entire world, Matthew twenty eight nineteen, Acts one eight, and Acts two forty two. You get the point. The purpose of the church is found in the Word of God. One of the main purposes of the church is this spiritual growth. Of, with an inward focus, uh, a focus for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body in Christ. And this reality defines so much of what the church does on a regular basis, from instruction from God's word to training men and women to discipleship. And the list goes on and on and on. And in all of this, the church is, has these inward eyes and focusing on building up the, this, this looking at the saints in the church and building them up to further maturity and Christ-likeness. I'm going to read Ephesians 4. Uh, if you're taking notes, it's Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It says this, And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Listen, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. There's this inward focus, this building up until we attain to the unity of the faith in the full knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we are no longer children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. That is Christ. Listen, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies. That's these individual workings uh, according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The purpose of the church, one of the primary purposes of the church, is this internal building up of the saints. Why? For the glory of God. Across the scriptures, there is this inward focus for the church to be building up. Colossians 1 says that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
And the shepherds, elders of your church are tasked to cultivate maturity of the individual members of the body, all of which circles this inward focus of the body of Christ being built up. That we are, we are being pushed from further and further maturity. That sanctification, this, this process of being more and more like Christ is taking place. But this is not the only purpose and task the church has been given. Uh, there's also this outward gaze that we have. So we have this inward and we have this outward gaze looking, uh, a ministry that is looking out and what the church has been called to, namely being a light in the darkness. The church has called, been called to be a light in the darkness here and across the globe. Worldwide disciple making and church planning in every corner of the earth. Where there is no light, no church, no corporate worship of Christ. Listen to Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead in the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So we've seen that there's this inward building up purpose of the church, and there's this outward this outward where we are looking to the nations. We are looking out into the dark corners of this earth where there is no gospel light, where there is no beacon of truth in the church. And so uh, as we begin, that's what we're going to be looking at, this outward look. But before we do, I, I want to uh, kind of give pre, three prerequisites that will help uh, silence the thoughts that may cause us to disregard the text this morning. There is a genuine temptation that we may be faced with when we come to a sermon like this or a text like this that can actually silence the text. We don't want to do that. So three prerequisites or three obstacles that we have to cross before we can jump into the text. Number one, you may be tempted to say to yourself, I've heard this passage before. I already know this. I know the Great Commission. And if I can encourage you, I would, I would just challenge you to not do that. I would challenge you to have a high view of the Word of God and the preaching of God's Word that would cause you to, to long to listen, to long to be fed, to long to be encouraged. I was speaking with one of your pastors this week, and he just said, you know, we could teach the book of John, and then we could start back at John chapter 1 and just teach it again, and we would see it with new eyes. And that's my encouragement for you, that you would, that you would have eyes to, ear, to, eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would be humble as we sit under the preaching of Matthew 28. The second obstacle that we have to jump over is that you may be tempted to feel pretty good about yourself when it comes to missions because of your church. This church is a faithful church when it comes to missions. You send out missionaries. You train up missionaries. We will see this later, but the church as a whole, yes, has a responsibility towards missions, but so do each of us. Each individual believer in the church must ask themselves where and how they might participate or support in worldwide disciple making today and five years from now in 15 years from now, in 50 years from now. We have that responsibility. We have to submit ourselves to the text. That was number two. Number three, our third obstacle that we have to cross is that we must allow the scriptures to define the mission of the church. We must allow that. It's not good intentions, not good works, not individual acts of mercy, nor humanitarian efforts. 
We sadly live in a day where people will do something that excites them in a different location or maybe even their own location and slap a mission sticker on it. I'm a missionary. This is what I do. We will circle back to this, but to, to help draw a line in your mind, one helpful consideration as we think about that is if an atheist can do the things that you are wanting to do, it is not the mission of the church. Think about that. If an unbeliever, if someone who is not redeemed by the blood of Christ is able to do the things that I'm wanting to do, that cannot be what the mission of the church is. So as we do, as we look at those obstacles uh, with the rest of our time this morning, we're going to be looking at that outward purpose of the church, that outward responsibility that we have uh, as a church to bring the gospel and the church to the corners of the earth and how every believer must actively support worldwide missions. So our timeless truth for this morning, this is our, our main theme. If you walk away with one truth from this morning, it would be that God calls to worldwide disciple-making and supplies in the doing of it. Again, God calls to worldwide disciple-making and supplies in the doing of it. So the structure for this morning, we're going to see three features of the Great Commission for the church's mission. Three features of the Great Commission for the church's mission. So uh, just to briefly, what is a mission? When we say the Great Commission, what are we talking about? Uh, the Great Commission is the church's mission. A mission, it, ultimately, it's, it's not a hypothetical. It's not a suggestion. Uh, it's not uh, an idea or a proposal. Uh, but the, the Great Commission is our task. It is our charge. It is our job. It's our assignment. It's our responsibility. It's our calling. And it is our objective. This is what we should be doing. We should be about. So before we parachute into Matthew uh, any further, I want to highlight the context of this passage, right? So you're in Matthew 28 and you must be thinking, well, what about the first 27 chapters, right? So thankfully, uh, as a church, you you go expositionally through. You start in chapter 1, verse 1, and you work through. But not today, right? We're, we're in Matthew 28. So I figured let's just start at the back. No. So uh, as we do so, the author of the book, Matthew, Matthew, the tax collector, uh, and the main theme of the book of Matthew uh, ultimately is showing that Jesus is the messianic king. Jesus is the messianic king from the line of David. Jesus is the king or Jesus as king. Uh, the genealogy in chapter one kind of leans you to that bent where you, you, where Matthew starts and where does he go? He says, Abraham. You're like, why are we starting in Abraham? But what you see is he goes, he starts at Abraham and works all the way through to Jesus and showing that Jesus is that messianic king. And so following through that line in Matthew. So now we're at the end of the gospel of Matthew. And just to kind of set the picture, Jesus has already died. He has been crucified on the cross and he has resurrected from the dead. He has been resurrected from the grave in which that, that work that he did, he absorbs the wrath of God and conquers sin and death by rising from the dead and ultimately for all who would believe. And now we're looking at this last passage in the book of Matthew. And so, again, our structure again, we're going to see three features of the Great Commission for the church's mission. For the church's mission. And so the first feature that we're going to see is the foundation. Jesus is going to lay this foundation as he then will give the great commission. So he lays this foundation. And in this, we're going to see Jesus's reception of supreme authority in all things. 
that he has received supreme authority in all things. Look at verse 18 with me. Matthew 28, verse 18 says this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now that term authority, uh, it, it means to have the right and the power to act. Jesus, because he has the authority, means that he has the right, it is his due right and his power to act how he ought. Jesus is telling them of this right and power that he has. So with this, uh, what this looks like is that Jesus has the right and the power to do all that he pleases. He is the king of all the earth. Jesus has authority to teach, forgive sins, remove demons, change the weather, and open the eyes of the people to see him spiritually. He can do anything that he wants. He has been given all authority. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That term authority, again, it has the right and the power to act. If uh, For anyone who has worked with kids or has kids, authority is a conversation that comes around like, Every three seconds, you're often having to tell, hey, who's the boss in this situation? And uh, yeah, Ephesians 6.1, and, and, and that's God-given, right? As parents, we've been given authority. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And so we have this God-given authority as parents to our children, and we've been given this authority. And ultimately, what does that mean? That means as parents, we have the right and the power to do what we ought to do as a family, when we eat, what we eat, where we eat. No one is telling us that, right? Because as parents, that's our job. Our four-year-old is not telling us when we do those things because we would eat ice cream every day, right? So why do we go places? Where we go? We are always, we are displaying our authority as parents as we make decisions for our families. We have the right and the power to determine what is going on. Maybe to kind of add to that, consider a king, Right? A king has been given authority over a specific location or a country or a province or a town. And that king lays out his decrees. The king has a given authority and power to do as he wants, to say as he wants. And what are the people expected to do? To obey. So a king has been given authority. Parents have been given authority. Jesus, here in Matthew 28, is speaking that he has been given all authority. All of it. All of it. He has supreme authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And this isn't the first time that this has come up in the book of Matthew. If you guys can think about uh, all of the places where Jesus just proves that he is God, that he is the king over all the earth. Think about Matthew 7. Uh, Jesus, after he finished, teaches the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it says that the crowds were astonished. In twenty nine, verse 29, it says this. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus teaches with, uh, with authority. Why? Because he has it. He has the right and the power to do so. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. In Matthew 9, 5, after Jesus has just healed the paralytic man, he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Verse 6, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus, as he heals this man, proves and states that he can forgive sins. Why? Because he has the authority to do so. We don't have the authority to do that. We can't do it like Jesus can. 
because he is God and he has been given the supreme authority. Jesus has the ability to open the spiritual eyes of unbelievers. Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son. Listen, and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. The son wills to reveal him. Jesus has the authority to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus has been given the right and the power to open the spiritual eyes of those who were once spiritually blind. And last one, Jesus has the authority over nature. In Matthew 8, you guys know the story. He's sleeping in the boat. Uh, and they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And they're in this huge storm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus does what he wants when he wants, because he has the right and the power. Jesus has authority over all things. So in the Casa de Twombly, uh, you can ask our kiddos, who is the boss? Who's the boss of this household? And they'll say, rightfully so, God. They'll say, God is the boss. And you ask them again, who else? Who's the boss of this house? They'll say, Daddy. And you ask them again, who else? And they'll say, Mommy. They know that there is this structure in our household that they are not the boss. Little kids, that's a challenge. They want to be the boss, but we are often telling them, right? They are not their boss. Their emotions are not the boss, but that God has given them parents who are the authority in their lives. We are the authority. And Jesus, in Matthew 28, as he begins, as he prepares to give the Great Commission, is sharing with his followers, all authority has been given to me. I have it all. I, I, I am the supreme ruler over all things. I am the king of kings. It's interesting if you think about, remember, what, what is the context of the book of Matthew? Jesus as the king. He's the messianic king. And at the end of the book, all authority has been given to me. I am the ruler of the earth. Jesus has supreme authority to rule all things in the universe. Now I want to take a time out. Jesus has supreme authority over all things. Because that is true, how should we view things that he calls us to do? Out of our time, what about our focus and our affections? The fact that Jesus is the supreme authority in our lives, how should we interact with the world? We have been instructed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Things like fear of man and discontentment should have no foothold in our lives. Think about that. Jesus rebukes the wind. He tells the wind and the waves, lay down, and they listen. And we as his creation ought to interact in that same manner. So, as you know, Jesus is about to give the task of the Great Commission. He's, gonna, he's going to give them this mission. He's going to give them this task. And as he does, he's laying this foundation that he has authority over all things. If you think about that, it gives much weight to what he's about to call them to do. As believers, we are ambassadors to the King of Kings. We are sent with a message, not our own, and with an authority, not our own, but of the King, the judge, the ruler, the creator of the whole earth. 
The foundation of the Great Commission is that the God-man who is commissioning all believers has all authority. He has the highest right and power, and he tasks us to a mission. So for our next feature, we're going to see the task. And in this section, we're going to see uh, one singular command out of the Great Commission. We're going to see this one singular command out of the Great Commission. And ultimately, the foundation is going to be hinged on everything that Jesus just said. Ultimately, knowing that I have supreme authority in all of heaven and earth, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. So we have to take a time out. And we're going to get really nerdy for like three minutes. Can we do that? I promise I'm going to try to communicate this in such a way that you guys can track. We have to get really nerdy as we look. It's likely that you've, you've seen this passage before. Uh, and as you do, and I, I don't want to make a huge deal, but we're just going to take a really quick deep dive. So hang on. Uh, not a huge deal, but there's a helpful uh, way. If we briefly look at the structure of this verse, as you read this section, there, appe- there appears to be four tasks that are given. There appears to be four verbs in the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Uh, and simply, all of these are tasks. If you look at them, they are verbs. They're either verbs and participles. Uh, but in a closer look in this section, we're going to see that there's one imperative in the Great Commission. There's one command in the Great Commission. And then there are three participles. Uh, simply stated, a participle is like a helping verb. It, uh, in the English, it typically is used as a descriptor or a support to the main verb. So, with that being said, one more layer. Uh, the layer, so the form of the first participle, go. That word go, you've probably heard this, right? So it's a participle, but because of the way that it is in the, in the original, it carries the same force of the command. So the two first commands, go and make disciples, ultimately are like a combo. The term go piggybacks on the command, make disciples. Okay. What does that look like in humans language? Matthew 2, I think, gives a perfect example. Uh, when the angel is talking to Joseph, this is what he says. Rise and take the child and his mother and flee. What is the thrust of what the angel is saying? Get out of, get out of Dodge. Go. You need to go. But what does he say first? Rise. And so that rise is a prerequisite. But he's not telling Joseph, rise. And like, there's like this super spiritual emphasis on this term rise. He's just saying, Joseph, get up and go. The point is go, but there's this first participle right in the front where he's saying rise. So how do we look at that? As we look at the four verbs, we don't see four commands, go make disciples, baptize and teach. But instead we see a main command, go make disciples. The thrust of the great commission is disciple making. And then we see subordinate details that commands that the command that that flesh out that command and how they are to go make disciples, namely through baptism and teaching. Okay, time back in. How do we do? We're good. Okay, I told you you could do it. So uh, go make disciples. So how do we obey this? If this is this is the thrust. If this is the task, go make disciples. How do we obey? We make disciples. Yeah. So we, so what is a disciple? A disciple by the Webster dictionary is a student or a follower. Uh, ultimately our, our definition as we look at it in the scriptures is going to be a student or follower of Jesus, a believer who is following after Jesus. John eight thirty one says this, uh, 
Where do we go? I think I turned two pages. John eight thirty one. Um, and so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So who is a disciple? Those who are abiding in the word of Christ, those who are followers of Christ, those who have submitted themselves and trusted in Christ for this salvation. So how do we make disciples? This is labor task. Uh, the, the task of making disciples is, is, is a long-term challenging work in which missions is, is this, this work of bringing light into the darkness sharing the gospel, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, living a life that is that is set apart and holy, right? Not being a stumbling block to the gospel, but living a life of, of good works, as Titus 3 would teach. And then Romans 1 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. How do we make disciples? We preach the gospel. We share the gospel and we preach the gospel and then we share the gospel and then we preach the gospel. That we are, we are doing the work of evangelism in building relationships with people and sharing Christ, sharing of the excellencies of Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed by God's power for God's glory. We are made right by the power of God through the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It is the work of Christ accomplished for all who believe in him through his sinless life and death in which he absorbs the wrath of God and resurrected from the grave and conquered sin and conquered death. And this is the good news that we proclaim. Jesus, the Messiah, died and he rose and he grants forgiveness to all who will believe. God, through his sovereign work, calls, regenerates, grants repentance, converts, justifies, sanctifies, and he glorifies. God saves sinners through the gospel. So what do we do? How do we make disciples? We go and we share the gospel and we share the gospel and we share the gospel. And if God in his kindness and his timing will save sinners, and we labor and we train and we teach and disciple and encourage and admonish. So Jesus commands disciple making, and then he specifies the location of that task. He says, go make disciples of all the nations, of all nations. Specifically, this shouldn't be marked out by those little thin lines that you see on a map or on a globe. The sphere of the task of the all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. Uh, this, distinct, the, this distinction should be the people groups, language groups, tribes in which they are according to. Uh, the, the Joshua Project says there's upwards of 17,000 different people groups in the world. 17,000. Jesus in Matthew 24 said, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the sphere of this command to make disciples is all nations. Jesus is calling them to worldwide disciple making. The Great Commission is a mission to go into the spiritual darkness of the world and bring light. And this can be in Mexico. This can be in Maui. This can be in Mozambique. So should people stay and plant churches in the U.S.? Yes. Should people share the gospel with friends, co-workers, and neighbors here? Absolutely. Yes, you should be doing those things. Uh, but when we consider these things, uh, when we consider missions, we should be thinking and considering the nations and going to these faraway lands and supporting those who are doing so. 
That doesn't belittle or give way to any weakness to people who are faithfully serving God in any context. God calls all believers to be faithful day in and day out. So look at verses 19 and 20 with me, and we're going to kind of see, so what does that disciple-making process look like? He says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. So these are going to be the ways that the disciples are being made. Uh, As people put their faith in Christ, that initial commitment to Christ is then put on display through baptism. And then their new life is marked out by learning and keeping of the commands of Christ. By saying baptism, uh, Jesus is using shorthand for everything that goes into the gospel labor of evangelizing. He's not saying, go find somebody and just dunk them in water. No, he's saying, after you've preached the gospel, after the Lord has saved them, as you have discipled them, then this process is going to be happening. Then, uh, then baptism is going to follow. Again, saying baptism, this is shorthand for everything that goes into the gospel labor of evangelism. Baptism doesn't produce salvation in a person, but it shows the spiritual work that has already happened and then life of the believer and then their desire to obey God and to prove identification with the triune God. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 20 again. Teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. A couple observations on this. Jesus is defining his expectations in the disciple-making. They're visibly united. They have visibly united themselves with the brethren through baptism. And then he says this, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you or to keep all that I commanded you. Two observations as we think about that. He says, teaching all that he commanded. There's this emphasis on all, the whole, uh, the whole counsel of God's word. And then secondly, he says, not just teaching them all, but teaching them to keep all that I have commanded. So there's this understanding of that they are, learning of the words of Christ, that they're learning the word of God and then learning to obey and to keep it. So Jesus is calling them to instruct the new believers in the truth and to teach them how to obey God in their lives. So to tie this feature together, this second feature uh, in the Great Commission, I want to consider and I want to make a point. The result of faithful Great Commission disciple making should aim to culminate in church planning. I want to say that again. The result of faithful, great commission disciple making should aim to culminate in church planning. Said simply, as you do the great commission work, churches should be planted. You should be seeking to plant churches as you are doing the great commission. A couple of reasons. Uh, the great commission uh, is disciple making, which is church planning. Uh, the first point, you know, the New Testament's role of baptism in the scriptures uh, leads to identifying with the assembly of believers. Baptism equaled entrance into an identification with the believers, the brethren. Uh, Acts two forty one. So then those who received the word and were baptized in that day were added about 3000 souls and they were continually devoted themselves to the apostles teachings and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Secondly, the role of instruction, preaching, teaching in the New Testament is found in the local church. The role of instruction, preaching, teaching in the New Testament is found in the local church. Uh, Acts 28 says this, 2028, sorry, 2028 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God, the Holy Spirit, appoints shepherds to shepherd the flock of God. 
namely pastors and elders. Simul- the, the, the word is the same. A pastor is an elder, is an overseer. Ephesians 4, we see the role of pastors and teachers in this body. Ephesians 4.11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Again, the, the role of teaching and instruction is given to the local church in the New Testament. Number three, maybe probably the strongest, the church is defined in First Timothy as the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. First Timothy 3, verse 15. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar in support. It is, it is the buttress. It is, it is this thing that is upholding the truth. It is holding the truth up. And what has Jesus just said? Teaching them to observe or teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And we see that, right? If we look at the book of Acts, how did these original, the original audience listen to what Jesus said? They went out and they planted churches. And so there's this, there's this example that we have that great, the Great Commission results in church planning. One pastor writes that we should never think of missions or an attempt to do missions apart from a love for the local church and a desire to see biblical churches established, growing, and reproducing themselves. Uh, it's foreign to think that believers could be taught all that he has commanded and grow to serve the Lord for long periods of time apart from the church or at least by working towards one. It would be uh, like an Israelite 3,000 years ago saying that they wanted to worship Yahweh, but they didn't want to do it at the temple, nor did they want to make sacrifices. It doesn't make sense that Christians now, we learn and grow and serve in the local church, just like Israelites worship God through going to the temple and making sacrifices. Actually, so just a thought, can you imagine how things would be if we sought out just to just to make converts and not plant churches? How would it go? How would, would you imagine? Imagine if everyone in this room, someone just came and shared the gospel with you and there's no churches for you to go to. It'd be challenging. How would we grow? How would our sin fight be? And I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian without the church. There are there are contexts in which people live and they don't have a strong church. But that is not the norm. And I would say that's not the expectation that is given in the scriptures. And that's more of a reason why you should all go be missionaries. So we should all, we, sh- we should be thinking in that light. So, uh, and really we don't have to imagine it. Paul tells of, uh, in Titus, I read it in Sunday school, in Titus 1.5, he tells what it would be like if there wasn't a church, if there wasn't godly men that were leading the congregations. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The appointment of qualified men over local gatherings of believers is ultimately putting things into order. It's disorder without godly men leading churches. So we've seen this foundation of the Great Commission. Jesus has supreme authority over all things. And then he gives this command that we've seen in the task ultimately is the command to make disciples of all the nations. Lastly, we're going to look at this third feature and we're going to go quick. We're going to see the confidence, the confidence that Jesus has given. And in this section, we're going to see a divine comfort and strength during as we do the task, during our doing of the task. God calls us to a work and then supplies himself throughout it. He calls us to a work and supplies himself throughout it. Look at verse 20, the end of it. And behold, 
I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And behold, Jesus drawing emphasis here. Uh, this can be translated as indeed or low. Uh, and something that's interesting here is that most like most of the people who are hearing this watch Jesus be crucified. It's interesting, right? Jesus said, I'm going to be with you. And they just watched him die. And then he's he's now resurrected. He's sit they're sitting before him listening. And he promises, I will be with you to the end of the age. And they will soon be present with him as he ascends into heaven. So how does this happen? What does it mean that he will be with them or with us? Jesus will be with us. There's a huge comfort in Christ's presence and that we are not alone in the task as believers as we are alone in this mission. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that all believers are members of one body and says in 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Uh, everyone, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 11. I think there's, there's a passage that really emphasizes this reality. Uh, so Acts chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 19 uh, to see what is, what does it look like to have Jesus with us? When Jesus says, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, what would be an example of that? So in Acts chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 19 and I'm going to read through 21. So Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says this. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks and also proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. Listen to verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So as they are, Jesus has ascended into heaven. They are going and they are doing gospel ministry. It says the hand of the Lord is with them. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That Jesus will be with us. This is an encouragement and a protection. There's much encouragement in knowing that the work uh, that I'm doing is accompanied by the power of God. And the fruit we hope to see is going to come as the fruit of the work of Christ. Jesus will be with them until the end, until the end of the age. And so we've set this foundation that he has authority over all, and that he gave this task to worldwide disciple-making. Go to the nations and make disciples. And then he gives them the confidence of his presence with them. So what do we do with all this? Right? How, do, how do we as a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, respond to a passage like this? Just want to remind you, the, the thrust of what Jesus is hitting is that God calls to worldwide disciple-making and he supplies in the doing of it. Jesus is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, and he says, go make disciples. And then, if that were enough, he promises his presence along the way. Uh, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And the Great Commission is the means by which Jesus is building his church. That as we go and we make disciples and plant churches of all the nations, that he, Jesus, is building his church. A couple thoughts. Number one, biblical missions must focus on gospel proclamation and church planning. Missions cannot be well digging, hospital work, orphanage starting, shoe giving, or food providing. But please don't hear me saying those things are bad. And they aren't. And believers should do them. Believers should do good things. If they have the means to, they should give uh, when it is in our ability. But it is not the mission of the church. 
by far the most helpful thing that I've ever heard at this point was by Pastor Dave Dorn, where he says, if an unbeliever can do it, it's not the mission of the church. In Christ, we have the words of eternal life. We have the well that will cause people to never thirst again. They will never thirst again. We have the bread for people to never hunger again. Why should we ever want to merely give someone a full stomach physically when people need the gospel of Christ? And that is the power of God for salvation. Uh, Just another thought. Missions is not an option for the church, but it is a command. It is a command that we ought to be considering. And it must ever be in our minds. God is very clear about his name being glorified in the nations. So church, ask yourselves, how are you doing when it comes to missions? Are you considering how you are playing a part in missions? One pastor once asked, don't tell me why I sh- why you shouldn't go to the mission field, but why you should stay. Why should I stay in Oklahoma? And the reality is, and I mentioned this earlier, you guys are doing fantastic at this. You uh, have a reputation of being a missions-minded church. Think about it. You have uh, a man who has been serving in Mexico for years now, and you support him, and you pray for him, and you love him. And then in the last, what, three months... Two families have come to your church with individuals that are grown, that grew up in this church longing to go to the mission field. That, that, that is praiseworthy. And I, and I would just echo what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians when he says, excel still more. Church, continue to think like that. The, the task is not done. So how does one stay in Oklahoma or America or anywhere and still obey the Great Commission? I support missions. Be a support role, writing letters, checking in on them, visiting missionaries, serving and supporting long-term missionaries, training people to go up, continue to build up the body and be equipped. Don't stop talking about missions. Keep your missionaries in your minds and in your prayers. Train your children to consider missions and then send them out like arrows of a warrior. Send all of your kids to the mission field. They have to go. Or some. Send them all. Uh, we are sent out by the King of Kings to make disciples. Jesus has authority overall, and we do it according to the way that he has told us. There is this outward purpose and responsibility that we have as a church to bring the gospel, to plant churches in every corner of the earth where there is darkness, and how every believer must actively support worldwide missions. And know this, God calls to worldwide disciple-making, and he supplies in the doing of it.